0: You would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 17. We'll take a look at verses 8 through 16. It's a delight to be with you, a joy to be able to share God's Word. God's Word comes to us this morning, this story here in Exodus 17, to give strength for the weary. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt isolated? I've felt alone, I've felt isolated, even in times when I'm with other people. I've played on sports teams where I felt alone and isolated. I felt like I was the only person on that team that wanted to win. I've been in crowds of people and felt alone. I've been with my family, even with my spouse, and felt alone. Isolation is a really dangerous place to be. It's especially dangerous for the Christian, spiritually speaking, because God's not designed for us to be alone. He's not designed for us to be in isolation. Isolation leaves us vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. And just as you can imagine, a sheep that has wandered from the flock outside of the fold, that sheep is vulnerable to the attacks of a wolf who would pick that sheep off so also Christians are vulnerable to Satan's lies, his deceit, the deceitfulness of sin that dwells within, the ways of the world that are fallen that would suck us into their pattern of thinking. And isolation leads to a vulnerability that ultimately is very dangerous and damaging to the Christian. This story here in Exodus 17 teaches us about a positive example of God's design for us to find strength together in the midst of weariness. And it's a message that you need to hear if you're here this morning and you're a Christian. You need to press into the family of God. But it's also a message that you need to hear if you're not a Christian. You've not been adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter. You need to hear this and you need to be encouraged that there is a place to belong. The family of God is a beautiful, blessed place to be. And perhaps this vision of strength in the midst of weariness will encourage you to go from independence and isolation, and you indeed, today perhaps, would come, become a part of the family of God. Bob Putnam, in his book, Bowling Alone, written in the year 2000, identifies isolation as an increasing problem not this is even before covid so we're not even just talking about the past year and a half of isolation during covid we're talking about a problem in which our society is avoiding the practice of neighborliness like we used to we used to know our neighbors names But now, due to, as some have called, the curse of the garage door opener, you pull in after work, you get in, and you hit the button, and the door's down, and nobody has to see you, and you don't have to see them. But in our society, we're drifting in that direction, and as Christians, we can be tempted to go in that direction of isolation, but God's Word compels us to come together. God's Word compels us that relationships in the church might be messy, and they might be hard work, but they are a mess worth making. Because it's in relationships that we find strength in believing in and pursuing Jesus. Let's read this story, this text of God's people. Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8. This story comes to us in the midst of the exodus of God's people from under slavery under the hand of Pharaoh, now into the time of the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, on their way to the promised land. And shortly after, they crossed the dry Red Sea, An enemy threatens the Hebrew people. Verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down. Of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. and May he bless it and cause it to prosper and flourish in our hearts this morning. So this story of the Amalekites, the enemies of God's people, coming up against them is a problem that comes to us in the midst of a series of problems, in the midst of challenges that the Israelites cannot solve. You see, there are many lessons that come to us in this narrative. One of them is that God continually proves that he is their salvation, their deliverance. If you look at the few chapters beforehand, you'll see that time and time again, the Israelites encounter various problems they cannot solve. And God, time and time again, proves to them he can solve their problems. Even in this story, the conclusion of the matter, verses 14 through 16, is God's got this. God's the one that gets the credit. Write this down. Speak it. God proves he's their deliverance. In the chapters prior to this, the same kind of a pattern is repeated by the narrator, Moses. He's telling us that God's people really aren't that, all that big and bad. God's people are actually really struggling. In chapter 15, for example, we find that they run out of water. And maybe you would expect them being an inventive and ingenious types of people that they would come together and dig a well, or they would come together and create some kind of a system to plan on giving everybody water. But that's not exactly what they did at all. (laughs) The opposite. They just complained and grumbled and moaned and groaned. And they said to Moses, Why have you brought us out here? And why has God brought us out here? To die of thirst in the wilderness? This was their refrain faithlessness, lack of belief. But what does God do? He's gracious, he's full of mercy, steadfast love never ends. And he says, I'll provide water for you. The narrator tells us again in the following chapter 16 they run out of food. And the people, same pattern, grumble, complain, God, what are you doing? We're going to die of hunger out here. What is going on? We should have, you could, you should have stayed, we should have stayed, you should have left us back in Egypt. We had plenty to eat. We were at peace. God graciously provides them with food in chapter 16, bringing down manna from heaven. And again in chapter 17, they run out of water. Here in chapter 17, they run into a problem of passage. They can't get through the area on their way to the promised land. The Amalekites said, nope, we are cutting you off and cutting you down and cutting you off of the fa- uh, place of this earth. And then in chapter 18, they have another problem, a problem of judgment. Hope you're seeing the pattern here. The pattern here is that God's people are faithless, yet God remains faithful. And in some cases, Their problems are of an external nature, and sometimes, God's people, their problem is of an internal nature. This is true of the human existence, isn't it? We have many enemies without, but we also have enemies within. This is one of the core teachings of the Christian faith that set the Christian faith apart from other worldviews. That is, very simply, that we don't just believe that there's an evil world out there. We don't just believe that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we believe, as the early pages of Genesis teach us, that sin is crouching at the door of our hearts. We are depraved by nature. Our natural inclination is to choose evil, to choose the wrong, to rob God of the worship he's due and draw attention to and worship ourselves. God's enemies are many. Satan, the fallen pattern of the world, and even our own hearts Though God's enemies are many and God's people are weak, God is strong and faithful to fulfill his promise. I want you to see in this story these general ideas, these general principles. These are kind of the big picture ideas, right? That God secures their victory, that God proves continually he's their salvation, that even though they're weak, he is strong. But as we dive into this text, there's really one main point We'll break it down into two that we're going to spend our time in. And the first is that God secures our victory. I want you to notice this in the conclusion of the story in verses 14 through 16. God secures our victory. Lest Joshua or Moses or the people ever got the big head, ever developed a spirit of pride, God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses, Write down, keep it in the record, who gets the credit for this victory. That's in verse 14. He says, Write this as a memorial. He knows that Moses, Joshua, and the people are forgetful people, just like us, by the way. That's why we are always rehearsing the good deeds of God. That's why we're always going back afresh. To God's word. That's why if you don't spend time regularly in God's word, then you are putting yourself in danger of forgetting the certain faithfulness of the Lord. He tells Moses, write this down, recite it in the ears of Joshua, who was a very young leader at this time. I want you to write it down, recite it. I will blot out, the Lord says, the name of Amalek from under heaven. This is the demise of every enemy of God, isn't it? Those who would set their face against the Lord and remain there. The Lord's wrath is against you. The Lord's wrath is against Amalek. And he says, I will wipe out every enemy that I have. In the end, the Bible tells us that Moses did this. He built an altar. He set up some stones and on this set of stones... He called it, the Lord is my banner. This was a common practice in this time and day to set stones up that would be reminding them of God's great work. The phrase in verse 16 is a difficult one to translate into English from Hebrew. Version, different versions of the trans, of Bible translations render this very differently. Mine says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And essentially, this is a statement that would have given the Israelites great confidence, great remembrance of the Lord's deliverance of them from their enemy, the Amalekites. The point is here in verses 14 through 16, and even the narrative and the way the story unfolds, the actual battlefield, it's clear, isn't it, that if you were going to walk away from this story with A very central truth. You would not walk away from it saying or thinking, man, Moses is just a great military leader. Or Joshua, man, he's really got it going on. Or they must have been very skilled swordsmen. No, the author does not draw attention to all of those facts at all. In fact, the, the attention, the climax of the story is when the Lord says, I'm your man. I'm your Lord. I'm your boss. I'm the king. It's it's an interesting question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Of what's my messaging? What's my marketing for who I am? What's my image that I project to people? Because we all do that intuitively, I think. Instinctively, we do that. And what the Lord was telling the Israelites here was what your message is about your identity, what your message is about who you are and what you do must not be... You've got this. It must be the Lord has this. We are often in danger of living in a way that's contrary to the supremacy of the lordship of Christ in our lives. The way that we're tempted to live in our actual lives is to portray this image that I've got it all together. And that's what Jesus rebuked in the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, was, You all look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And that same temptation is present for us, that we would live a life of hypocrisy, of having a false front, of having things look good on the outside, projecting an image that we have it all together. This reminder comes to the Israelites saying, God's got it all together, and even in your weakness, God's got your victory. Even the way the narrative unfolds, did you notice that it was Moses raising the staff in the air? That was the pivot point for the battle, the victory. You say, man, I, I would have thought that, that Moses would have, we, we needed all swords out on the field. We would have needed all, all hands on deck. Moses says, I'm going up to the hill and I'm going to raise this staff heavenward. Because in raising the staff heavenward, Moses was expressing faith that God would work another miracle. Moses didn't walk up that hill and then look to the side and say, Boy, I need a walking stick. Let me pick up this stick. No, he brought with him a staff. In the words of Matthew Henry, it was the staff that was the wonder-working rod. This is the same rod that, if you know the story of Moses and his people, you know then that this was the same staff, the same rod, that the Lord had used in many mighty ways. You remember what happened when he took the rod And he cast it at the feet of Pharaoh, and it transformed into a snake. Yes, that same rod the Lord used for the ten plagues of Egypt. Throughout the course of that, he stuck it into the water and turned the water into blood. That staff was the one that he spread out over the parting of the Red Sea. He struck the rock for water, etc. The staff became a sign and a symbol of God's presence and power. Commentators Kyle and DeLich say this about the staff. God has chosen and already employed this staff as the medium of the saving manifestation of his almighty power. So when Moses was extending his hands with the staff in them, when he extended it heavenward, he was expressing faith and reminding the people that God would work another miracle. Matthew Henry says, a word of encouragement about this and application for our lives, he says, it lends much to the encouragement of faith to reflect upon the great thing God has done for us and review the monuments of his favors. So in our lives, we don't have a staff like they did, but we have things that might be signals or symbols of mementos of God providing God saving, God delivering. There's a key, a silver key that rattles around in my junk drawer. And there are a lot of things like this that my wife, being the tosser, would love to toss into the trash. Me being the keeper, I would love to just overflow, right, with stuff, junk. It's not junk, very precious monument of God's favor, because that little silver key, I'm telling you, reminds me of the fact that in 1996, when I got my driver's license, the Lord provided a car. That was the key to my first car. We do this in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes you'll put a picture on the wall to remind you of an event or something that happened that that was very significant, or we'll put a scripture on the wall that was very meaningful to us and helped us get through a dark valley in the past. These monuments of God's favor are a life-giving reminder. There's no magic in the symbol. It's just a reminder that God is here. It's a reminder that God hasn't forgotten you. It's a reminder that when evil threatens to overwhelm you, God has been faithful and he will be. I don't know what those monuments of favor are in your life, but I would encourage you to have them. I would encourage you to regularly rehearse the redemptive work of God in your life. By calling out to God, Moses led the people to acknowledge that they could not win the war solely by the sword. He he was calling out to them to remind them that it was necessary that they wield the sword... But it reminds me of the verse in Psalms that says, The horse and the chariot are prepared for the day of battle, but the battle, the victory belongs to the Lord. You see, Moses was was communicating something with this by calling out to God. He was saying, I cannot afford not to pray. We often feel like we're too busy to take time to pray. We're, We're often too busy to slow down and stop progress, in our view stop progress of getting stuff done because we're under such incredible stress and pressure. But one one, uh, church father said, when we feel like we don't have enough time to pray, be reminded that you don't have enough time to not pray. You need God's intervention in your life, especially when you feel so pressed and so stressed under the deadlines that are coming up. And by calling out to God, Moses was teaching us that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 puts it like this. The words of the Apostle Paul are that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and spiritual forces. If you have opportunity to come to the, the class here, the seminar, on biblical view, of biblical principles of spiritual warfare, you should do so. Because the ways of the world are, our solutions are in politics or Our solutions are in science, or our solutions are in education, our solutions are in all of these other things. And we know from God's Word, and we know from our own experience that these things aren't creating solutions, they're just creating more problems. It's a cyclical system of sin. We need someone from the outside who would reach in and redeem us. And this idea of spiritual warfare, of Moses engaging in this ministry of intercession and prayer, is so vital because God secures our victory. Today, God calls each of us to look back to the cross 2,000 years ago, where Jesus was lifted up and all men were drawn to him. You see, Moses, he looked for God's provision in the immediate, but there was a sense for every Old Testament believer that they were looking forward to God's ultimate provision that would come one day. And even the sacrifices and the other acts of worship that the Old Testament Christians would commence were pointing forward to the satisfaction of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. And we, 2,000 years later, we look back and we see the cross where Jesus was lifted up not just a staff, not Moses, but we see Jesus who was lifted up, who draws us to him in faith. You see, whereas Moses lifted up that piece of wood that would serve as a sign and a symbol temporarily of God's saving power, Jesus himself would be laid on the piece of wood and lifted up. And after he was laid in the tomb for three days, he would rise again to certain victory. And you and I, in the midst of this journey, find ourselves battling evil, battling the enemy in so many different forms and fashions. And it can easily lead us to question whether or not God is powerful enough to deal with the evil in my life. Whether you're a victim of abuse or a victim of injustice in some other kind of a way, you ask a question, rightly so, I would say, God, where are you? What about this injustice? What about this enemy? The question is right in the motive of, God, can you help me understand? Because God, in the cross, God replies, I am powerful enough to overcome evil. I am compassionate enough. I am good enough. I do care enough. And I've done so by sending my son Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus was the one who came and gives us that sign and symbol of God's certain victory because it was in the cross that we find the climax of God's victory over sin, death, the grave, Satan. Every enemy that we face, Jesus demonstrated in the cross that he died there in our place, bearing the penalty and wrath of God, and rising again three days later, he was showing death has no hold on me, the grave has no power on me, and all who believe in me will experience eternal life. Jesus was the better Moses who came. Moses was certainly the provision of God here, holding up the staff, reminding them of God's faithfulness. But the cross is the certain and the unwavering sign of God's victorious presence in our lives. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father 40 days after he had risen from the grave, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he told him, I'm coming back again. And until I come back, I want you to stay in the fight. Until I come back, don't lose heart. You may feel like evil can overwhelm you. You may feel like your addiction to pornography will prevail. You may feel like your tendency to slander or gossip may be something that you could never overcome in this life. You may feel that way. Jesus says, I'm coming back, and in the meantime, I want you to fight sin in all of its forms. I want you to fight against the schemes of Satan. I want you to fight against the fallen pattern of thinking of this world. I want you to fight against the sin that dwells in your own heart. And when he comes, he promised in Revelation 21, he will make all things new. What a glorious day that will be. The cross lifted up is the certain and unwavering sign of God's victorious presence and power in our lives. There's a second part of this that I want you to see from the text. That not only does God secure our victory, but he does this, if I could complete the sentence, God secures our victory in the strength of united faith. God secures our victory in the strength of united faith. In other words, the message of all that Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he now intercedes for us, That message does not come to us merely as individuals. In our rugged individualism that we in the West tend to embrace, we tend to think of salvation simply in individualistic terms. But really the Bible teaches very clearly that it's the strength of united faith that helps us persevere to the end. So the lone Christian, the lone ranger Christian, is most often the type of christian that does not persevere to the end. It says Jesus told in the parable of the soils, the one that the soil the seed was in the soil that was very shallow, and so it sprang up and looked like it would have a long enduring fruitful life, but when the sun scorched it, it withered away and died. Jesus teaches in that parable of the soils that there are some people who appear to be christian who don't make it to the end. One of the things that God has given us to help us persevere to the end and ensure that we are good soil, receiving the good news of Jesus and letting it plant deep in our hearts and lives and letting it last for our lifetime, persevering all the way to the end of our lives, that tool, that means, that provision of God is community. It's the strength of united faith that helps us carry on when we don't feel like carrying on. It reminds us that God's promises are sure when we don't feel like believing God's promises are sure. It's the strength of united faith. Verses 8 through 13 of this text unfold this story that to, to where we can't come away with a conclusion that there was any one hero besides God, but he did it by everybody playing their part, everybody working together. It was the strength of united faith that worked itself out. James chapter 2 talks about the The nature of saving faith. And the nature of saving faith is that alive, true faith is a faith that works. It's a faith that works. But a faith that doesn't work, a faith that doesn't play its part, reveals the fact that it's not a saving faith. The Reformers said it kind of like this, that uh, that we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith never remains alone. The fact that we believe that God has brought us a certain victory in the cross of Christ works its way out so that we are identified by a fight. The presence of the fight is the sign of life. So an interesting note about the timeline of God's people here that's a parallel for our lives is that while they were enslaved under the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, there was no fight of the enemy. In fact, that's why in Exodus 16, 17, 18... And throughout their 40 years of wandering, they kept looking back and longing for the time when there was no fight. No enemies to wipe them out. We had so much food to eat. We were so comfortable. Can't we go back? It's freedom from slavery that leads the Christian to the ongoing fight. But if you are here this morning and you don't feel the fight, you don't feel the the tension of, your fleshly sinful self, you just feel comfortable. You're like, wow, this is kind of a nice thing being a Christian. You're not a Christian if there's no fight against sin. The fight against sin is the sign of life. Freedom from slavery leads to an abundant life engaged in warfare. Notice all of the things from this story. Where they availed themselves of every means available. Everything they could find, they put to use. Believing in God, expressing faith in Him, they grabbed a stone. They rolled it under Moses and said, sit down. They steadied his hands. Some of them wielded swords. They got by his side. And it tells us, as the sun set, some wielded swords. Others came to Moses' side with a stone to steady his hands. This is a saving faith that worked itself out. I want you to notice, too, the the need for a united faith here. Though Moses was the one stretching out his hands in dependence heavenward, he got tired. Did you notice that in the story? That's really the pivot point for the victory versus defeat, isn't it? Because as long as his hands were up, they were winning. When his hands got tired and he lowered them down, they started to lose. Moses' hands grew weary, verse 12 tells us. But the presence of Aaron and her alongside of Moses illustrate for us and demonstrate that we are stronger together. We're better together. Even heroes of the faith like Moses, their arms get tired. This is a temptation for pastors. I mean, every Christian, but pastors especially feel this temptation to feel like they've got to have this facade of keeping it all together and being the strong one, because people are looking up to you. Well, you should look up to your pastors, but you shouldn't look up to them in a way that puts them on a pedestal or makes an idol out of them. They're not infallible. They're not perfect. They're leaning on Jesus, and their primary role and my primary role is to lead you to lean on Jesus, even heroes of the faith like Moses grow weary and need the support of others around them. This is one of the core things of the heartbeat of the GDab is to come alongside of pastors who are especially weary in light of the last 18 months of dealing with COVID stuff. Pastors are weary. Pastors who are isolated need relationships in their life to help them press into Christ and persevere. Some churches do a great job of helping their pastor press into Christ they treat them well, love them well, and some churches don't. I'm pleased to hear and, and encourage you with encouragement I've heard from Pastor Eric and others that you all do a great job taking good care of your pastors. So keep up the good work. That tells me that you get this. You understand that even heroes of the faith get tired, and they need someone to come alongside of them and help them. I mean, in a very physical, tangible way, I feel Moses' pain here because I used to be a lot more active than I am uh, in the gym and these kinds of things. And I know that you can't tell now, but I used to lift weights. And I remember, uh, what, I, I loved doing bench press, fly, dumbbell flies, uh, bench press with a bar, just a variety of things. But there were a few instances where I made the foolish decision to lift on my own without a spotter being present and so I pushed myself a little bit further than I should have working out alone, and sure enough, I'm on the bench, and those dumbbells came crashing down, and without a, with a spotter there, they're there to help me make it the rest of the way, and Moses's weariness and our weariness physically points us to a spiritual reality that our souls get fatigued, our hearts can get tired, whether it's fighting for the truth in a world that doesn't care about truth, whether it's trying to stay faithful to your spouse, even though they've wronged you and you feel like you're justified to abandon your spouse, whether it's trying to be the right parent that you should be and disciple your kids. There are so many ways that we are called by God to obey Him and live a life obedient to Him. So many different ways And no matter what way it is that you are trying to live in a faithful way, but you're growing weary, I need you to possess the humility and transparency that Moses did to acknowledge that he needs some help in his time of weariness. In fact, some of you might be here this morning and or watching online and you are kind of in a situation like Moses. Maybe you've been doing well in some ways, but you're, you're feeling a little tired. We don't know this. The author, Moses, doesn't tell us at all. Pure speculation here. Have you ever wondered what went through Moses' head? And when? How, what was the timing? How long did it take before he finally said, all right, guys, come alongside of me? I mean, I know my stubborn heart. I know my dogged perseverance that I think that I'm so good and so strong. I know how I tend to be with DIY projects. I got this. (laughs) I wonder if Moses thought for a little while, Aaron, her, y'all, just, I got this, I'm fine. It's a temptation for each of us to feel and think that. But what I love about Moses' meekness, as the Bible teaches us, is that he received the help. Some of you are here this morning, and you need to hear that, it's okay to receive help. That's how God's put you together. That's why he's designed the church to be the church. It's the same thing he taught in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, that we're better together, we're, we're stronger together, because when one falls into a ditch and can't get out, if you've got a buddy there, they can pull you out of the ditch. If, if one person loses his sight, the other can help guide him with his sight. When you have a blind spot in your life and you can't see the sin that's There, having a loving brother or sister next to you, near to you, helps you see that blind spot and ways in which you're not trusting Christ. So whether it's a willful or inadvertent departure from faithfully following Jesus, we need each other. We're stronger together. In fact, in the New Testament, it teaches us there are 59 of these commands to one another. I'm turning that into a verb. 59 times the Greek word alelone is used, and 59 times we're told, love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another. The ministry of presence is very foundational to this. I'm not simply talking about being together, I'm talking about being together intentionally to press each other into Christ. That's how we get to the place of forgiving Strengthening, encouraging, loving one another. Because together we're all looking to Jesus. We each experience different seasons of giving and receiving support. And there may be moments when maybe this morning you're like Moses and you need to be humble and transparent to say, help me press into Christ to those around you. Perhaps others of you, you connect more with Aaron and her who are in this moment being the ones giving strength to Moses. I wonder who's sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you and whether or not they might be the kind of person that you need to be an Aaron or a her to and you need to come alongside of them and just care enough, be attentive enough to see that they've got to wait On their shoulders, and they're struggling to persevere. The weight of the world is tempting them to give up on God and to not believe that He secures their victory. Whether you're in a season where you're like Moses and you need to receive some help, or you're in a season like Aaron and her and you need to come alongside and support others, we all go through these different seasons. And sometimes we go through those seasons at the same time. But the point is this. Pursue togetherness. Pursue togetherness on this journey, this pilgrimage. While we're on our way to the promised land, there's a battle going on. And we need each other to spur each other on to press into Christ. Because as we give and receive support, We point each other to the one who became weak in our place so that we would have strength. The difference between what we see in this story and throughout the pages of Scripture, the difference between that account of the human life and then every other account of human life that you'll face, whether it's a religious system or other worldview or purely just a secular humanism, Every other worldview besides the Christian worldview is a worldview that says, you've got the strength to do it, you muscle up, you pull up your bootstraps, you got this. The Christian community is a radically different community because we don't embrace that message at all. Where this is some kind of a fraternity or this is some kind of a self-help club. No, not at all. We're a group of people that come together, and we're united in our faith and common understanding that we don't have it all together, but we're here together because we all need God's grace. And because we all need God's grace, we're in pursuit. We're chasing hard after God's grace, and we're doing it together. Jesus is the one that we're all in. Jesus is the one whose identity we have assumed Jesus is the one in whom we have placed all of our trust. Because Jesus is the only one who never had any weakness in himself. And this is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus became weak in our place. He took on our weakness so that we would have strength. The gospel logic at play here is so beautiful because it's the idea that we're all finite, we're all fallen, we're all frail, but in Christ we have strength. In Christ we have victory. In Christ we have a place to belong. In Christ we have a community. In Christ we have our all. As Romans 8:37 says, in Christ the weapons that are formed against God's children will not prevail. In Christ, we face every enemy in victory and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I see all the time in our churches, in our, in our family of GDAB churches, I see all the time this play itself out that churches are better together It reminds me of uh, the the great sequoia trees out west that grow together in groves and the roots of these trees give the trees, massive trees, great strength and stability, not necessarily because the roots go so deep, but, but because the roots grow so intertwined. And those roots provide a network of strength and stability that lets these trees grow to be the biggest, oldest, most awesome trees you ever see. And that pictures for us each local church, and it also pictures for us what happens when churches band together and pastors band together in a band of brotherhood to say we are better together and we can accomplish more for God's kingdom and we can persevere stronger and harder together than we could part. So thank you, church, for being a part of the GDAB family. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for encouraging your pastors to be a part, because I believe firmly that as a result, Dayton will be impacted greater with the gospel and with its growth than it would if we each tried to do it on our own. I wonder, I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment, but I don't want you to walk away from here without having a plan to put this into practice. This truth that we've seen from Exodus 17, that God secures our victory in the strength of united faith. It may be that you need to write down a name of somebody that you need to be praying for, and maybe you need to reach out to. It might be that you're reaching out to say, I need you to help me. It might be that you would walk up to them and you would tell them, I love you. How can I pray for you? How can I serve you? But I encourage you to put together a plan, and like James chapter 1 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So how are you going to take this and live this out? We need God's help to do that, so let's bow together.